Good evening. Okay. Tonight will not be near as long as last week. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, it was a long one last week. Tried to cover the entire train of thought that Paul had from chapter 7 going into chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Um, we're just going to finish chapter 8, verses 12 through the end of the chapter here, but uh, let's pray before we start this endeavor. Lord, again, as we look at these scriptures, may through them you speak to our hearts, may we have clarity about what you said to Paul and what he was saying to the church there in Rome, and may we take the truths that are in these passages and allow them to affect our lives and to change us. May we give you room to move and work, and we thank you again for this time and this opportunity, and we do ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, have to review again. Please forgive the review, but it's always necessary to, to jump into these things because, remember, Paul is continuing a, a train of thought. And though he builds it up and then he asks a question and he builds it up a little bit more and asks another question, he's still trying to get us somewhere. Last week is really one of the places he was trying to get us to. And, and this portion of Scripture is almost euphoric. And now that we've gotten to this place, he just kind of unleashes this torrent of just God's love and goodness. But we need to, again, see where we were and where we're at here. And so, again, we have this idea that Paul is starting with, and it began really at creation. It began in Adam and at the beginning, because he talks about Adam in depth in chapter 5, and he uses Adam as that reference as, in one man all have sinned, but in Christ it is more so. Though many have sinned, in Christ all are made alive. But because of this sin, God had to deal with humanity. What was God going to do that now man has fallen into this pit of sin? And so God said, I know I'm going to do something to deal with sin. And what did God do to deal with the sin of Adam? He made a covenant. All right, Pat, you get an A. Okay, here we have Abraham. God made a covenant with a man. That in itself is amazing. And God was the one who established the covenant and this covenant was God's dealing with humanity. Man has fallen into sin. How are we going to deal with it? I am going to call this man and through him bless all the nations. And so through Abraham, he established the covenant. And with this chosen people, God then gave them a law. The law came through who? Through Moses. Now this is where Israel was getting their identity. Moses is the one who gave them the law. And so this idea of the law now became their focus. And so they were saying, we have the law. God has shown us 
how to live. We have the law, and so we are God's chosen people, and by this law, we are going to bring the truth of God into the world. But the problem is, the children of Israel, even though they had the law, never did accomplish that. In fact, they were constantly falling into this area of sin, and so it was with the Egyptians that they had this sin, that was before the law. Then it was the Persians, the Babylonians, the Romans. They were in exile. Exile was proof of their sin because if they were truly God's people and in right standing with God, they wouldn't be in exile. They would actually be the ones to bring in God's ways, which would be the what should we call it? I don't want to call it the end times. That that's giving us the wrong understanding. It would be the um, restoration to restore. And actually, in their minds, the exile, the restoration was going to happen through resurrection. God was going to restore and resurrect Israel. And that's what Ezekiel is about, the resurrection of Israel. And then Paul says, it's not happening. It already happened in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, we have restoration. We have resurrection that God has promised to Abraham, and it didn't come through the law. What the law actually did was point you to Adam. And so with Adam, you had your identity. The law showed us that we were in Adam, but Christ is your new identity that connects us to the restoration of God. And so we are no longer in Adam. This is not where our solidarity lies. Our solidarity lies in Jesus. And they needed to see that because remember, Paul is writing to the Jewish Christian who was there, brought back in Rome. He is dealing with the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews saying, we have the truth. You Gentiles need to get on our program. The Gentiles are saying, what? No, you you guys are wrong. Christ is not requiring us to follow you. We don't need you Jews. And Paul is in this dilemma because we do need the truth that was revealed to the Jews, but we don't need what the Jews are holding on to, which is the law. What we need is what Christ has fulfilled in the promise where Adam couldn't connect us or the law couldn't do anything but connect us and show us who we were in Adam. Christ is now showing us who we are meant to be. It is the fulfillment. And, and last week, Paul has been building up, so what about the Jews? What about the Jews? What about the law? What about this thing? And he said that God used the law and the nation of Israel to be a spotlight for the whole world so that the whole world could recognize that sin has been gathered in these people. The sin of Adam that was before Abraham and Moses has been gathered together and the weight of that sin that the Jewish people could not carry, it was a burden that was too heavy for them was put on the faithful Israelite, Jesus. 
Remember, Jesus is not only the incarnation of God, he is the incarnation of Israel. He is what Israel was supposed to be. He is fulfilling what God promised to Abraham. God kept his promise. He didn't do it by them keeping the law. He did it by fulfilling the covenant with Abraham and all that was in the law then was put upon Jesus. The weight of the law, the weight of sin fell upon him. And so Paul could say, it's done now. Israel was the spotlight. By by the law, sin was increased. Remember, he kept using this sin increased. Well, if sin increased, isn't that a bad thing? Well, no, it was to spotlight what was happening to the whole world. So the burden of the Jewish people was that they carried the law to reveal what sin was, where we were in Adam, and that burden then was put on Jesus, who then fulfilled what they could not fulfill. And so in Christ is now where we have our new solidarity. And remember, the end of chapter 7 was all about that. It was about, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that lives in me. Who was he talking about? He was talking about the Jewish person under the law not being able to fulfill what God had intended. That's why it seems so out of joint. Because some of those things that he mentions in chapter 7, you can't apply to us as Christians. It's not going to be, I delight in law, but another law is waging in me. The law of my mind makes me a prisoner of the law of sin. How, How am I a prisoner of the law of sin? Because I have a mind? Oh no, am I in sin or am I in Christ? Who am I? Well, the Jew identifies completely with that. And then he finally gets to chapter 8 and he says, Therefore, now there is no condemnation. What condemnation was he talking about? The condemnation that was in Adam. Because of Christ, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we don't follow after the law, we follow after the promise of God that is given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, that brings us into this newness of life. We are resurrected with Christ. The demonstration of that resurrection is in baptism. And so Paul has been leading us to this place where he finally says, the law did its purpose. It spotlighted what sin was. It illuminated it in the nation of Israel for all the world to see. And now that the world has seen what sin is, we see that Christ has bared the burden of that sin himself because Israel could not. And so sin was a force that had to be condemned. Israel was God's answer to the problem of sin But that sin was too much for her to bear, and instead the Messiah took that sin, the burden of election, which is God calling him. The burden of that election was laid upon Jesus. And so we saw that in the last chapter, and in chapter chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, he kind of built up on those things. And so now in chapter 8, verse 12, He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, remember, therefore is like him opening up another room. He says, okay, since God has put this burden on Christ, since we are no longer in solidarity with Adam, we're in solidarity with Christ. Now that we are connected to him, that we living in the spirit of Christ, 
That's where our identity is. He's now living us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I love how he puts this because he puts it, if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So it's not this, you're just going to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. It is by the Spirit. You see, we can do nothing to get out of our condemnation. But by the Spirit who comes through Jesus, now we don't consider ourselves a part of this any longer. We consider ourselves a part of this family of Christ. Now by the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. By the body, of the body, we will live. And so he's connecting us to life. Remember, the freedom to choose wasn't to choose between right and wrong. It was to choose between what? Life and death. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I set before you death and life. Choose life that you might live. That was the choice. So now what we're doing by the Spirit, we are choosing this life. The Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the, life, of the body. We will live. Verse 14, he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that God, we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Now, this is a description and an exhortation of the life of the new covenant people. This is meant to encourage us who are a part of this new life that God has established to Jesus, how we can be encouraged in this life. And in these verses, he's really giving us an example or a comparison to what the Hebrew mind would think of, of the delivery from Egypt in Exodus. And and so when he says to them in verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. When they hear the word slaves, they immediately think of Egypt. We were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. God delivered us from that. So We receive the Spirit, and He doesn't make us slaves. We're we're not going to go back to Egypt. We're not going to go back into this way of life. He's moving us into this land of promise, this area of promise, this new humanity, this new Adam that we are now in Christ. Again, this is building on chapter 5, where in one man, Adam, we are all condemned, but now through the man, Christ Jesus, All are made alive. We are not enslaved like they were in Egypt. God is leading us to a place of promise. And he says here, so that you might not live in fear again. We're not going to live in this idea that we're under oppression. We're not under that control. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 
And so this is an idea that you are not to go back to Egypt, but you are to enter into this familial relationship, that of a family, one where we now belong to God and are his children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so all creation, back to when he was dealing with the idea of creation, Adam and Christ, this new humanity is this new identity that we're having here, and he's leading us out just as God led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so there's a recognition of this deliverance that is taking place. You have been adopted And now you cry, Father, you are God's people carrying an inheritance. The old covenant is left back in Egypt. They inherited the land of promise. The the new covenant, this new identity, new people, we come out of death in the resurrection of Christ. We are given his spirit instead of given the law and is now looking forward to sharing the inheritance that is ours in Christ. All things are under his feet. Behold, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. That is connecting us to the restoration of all things. It's happened already. We don't see it yet. Which is part of the struggle that he's going to be dealing with, with their pain and the suffering and the tribulation that they go through. And so he's pushing us into this new identity that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are the family of God. We cry, Abba, Father. There is this new inheritance. They received an inheritance of a land through the law. We receive the inheritance adoption in Christ and where we will reign with him as he will reign that we will share in his glory. And that idea of glory carries in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I wonder what glory does he mean? What does he mean by the glory that will be revealed in us? Our present sufferings are not worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. In us, what glory is it? We are the agents of God's healing of the world. The glory that's to be revealed in us is the restoration of God and humanity. That is the glory that will be revealed in us. And so, this incredible promise that we understand that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory has to do with the task that is our responsibility, our obligation. We are obligated, he said, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. And so we have a job to do. And so the things that you're going through, the struggles, and at this time it was persecution, the persecution from Rome, the persecution from the Jewish non-believers, the persecution from the pagan unbelievers. There was a lot of oppression on those who were followers of Christ. And Paul was saying that the persecution, the suffering you're going through, it's not worth comparing with the task that you have, the glory which will be revealed in you. What is that glory? It is your connecting and healing the world 
who is separated from God back to God. And see, this the suffering has a, a very clear agenda. It's not just like, oh, my job is so hard, the suffering I'm going through, but one day I'm going to be in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the oppression you're feeling right now because of those who are hardening their hearts to God and are giving you grief because of your faith in God, it it compares nothing to the task that you have where the glory that's been given to you will be revealed as you connect people back to this relationship with God. And so imagine the glory that's going to be revealed in you is you're taking your faith and extending it to those who are outside of this faith. But in doing that, it's also going to cause you more suffering. How do you deal with that awareness? Well, if I talk about Jesus, that's what's causing my suffering. And Paul says, I reckon that the suffering of this present time isn't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in you. This is so much more important than the things that you're going through. And so he's trying to show them that their task that has been given to them is is an incredible one. And he takes them back for the creation. And here we have this kind of triple groaning that Paul presents here. You guys ever see those, I think they're Russian dolls, where they have like one doll inside of another? You know, it's like you open this one, this is the dad, and then this is the mom, and then this is the the kids. He's kind of got this triple groaning that takes effect here. And he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration by its own choice, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who is the one who subjected creation to this frustration? Who is the one? It's written on this board somewhere. The one. Adam. Chapter 5 in Adam. So, as creation has been subject to frustration, not on its own choice, the birds and all the grass and everything weren't saying, oh, I want to be frustrated and out of sorts with God. No, Adam put everything out of sorts. Okay, It was subject to this, not on its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And so that is Adam. Remember, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, that's who he's talking about. So here in chapter 8, it's really building on what he was talking about in chapter 5. He's just illuminating it more. And so we see the connection here in the train of thought. So that everything was subjected, the one who subjected it in hope. Let's read verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Bringing healing, the glory of the children of God, bringing that healing, okay? Where is the church in all this? Creation is suffering. And so here we've got 
All creation is suffering. You can say this is the world. Creation is suffering. Everything is out of sorts. Well, where is the church in all of this? What, what place does the church have to do with all this? Well, he says in verse 22 going on, now, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. And so he gives a harsh illustration, a powerful illustration, childbirth. We all know, well, all you women who have had children know how intense that is. Anyway, um, I was going to say something, but I'm not going to. So, We know the intensity of childbirth. He's talking about something that is extreme. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who are now a part of Christ, this new identity, also have this grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so the world is in travail. It's like giving birth. There's this pain going and the world isn't the only one doing it. We who belong to Christ, the church, are in creation also longing for what? Longing for this, the restoration. Christ says, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Then why am I suffering? Well, we're in childbirth. We're waiting for that child to be born. We're waiting for the deliverance. And so we too are here eagerly waiting for that adoption of our bodies when this mortality will put on immortality, when this corruption will put on incorruption, when the pain ceases, when we are actually living not under the fallen world's conditions, but under Christ's reigning. We're in that in-between waiting stage. And so we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of our sonship, waiting for it to go through the papers there, gone through now, boom, we are entered into his presence completely, fully. We all know that our bodies are decaying and it's becoming more evident the older I get the medicines I have to take. And when I go to the doctor, they say, you can't do that anymore. What? What do you mean I can't do that anymore? You're not like that. You can't eat like you used to eat. Oh, man, you can't do the things you used to do. And it's I don't even want to try and do some of the things I used to do. You know, it's just not physically possible. And so we know that our body is under corruption. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And we live in this condition, okay, We recognize that the church is in this creation. It's also in the creation. It's the second doll inside that series of doll. The church is in a place where the world is in pain, but the church is in that place with hope. The world is in a place of labor. The church is in a place labor waiting for birth. We are the ones who then bring this hope to the world that is around us. And he says, for in this hope, verse 24, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already seen? But we hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. So we were saved in hope. We were saved in the promise that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to 
Abraham to the world, really. But it's still hope because it's still in the future. You don't hope for something you have. You hope for what you don't yet have. And so he's telling us we were saved in this hope, but it's not something that we right now take hold of. But we wait for it patiently. And he uses the word patiently because that is supposed to be our attitude towards it. We're not supposed to wait impatiently. Man, hardly wait till Jesus because I'm sick of all this world junk. No, we wait patiently. I know it's coming and I will wait patiently for it. We're not good at patient waiting. At least I'm not. So the world is in travail. The church is in the world, but with hope. Where's God in all this? Is he removed? Is he off somewhere? Is he distant? Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself. And really that translation should be that very Spirit. It could actually even be translated the Spirit herself because the illustration is one of childbirth, which I think is interesting. Don't get mad at me. That's just what the text says. But it's interesting because the person of the Holy Spirit is revealed, and here is an illustration that is feminine, that of childbirth. And so the Spirit itself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So inside the church is God's Spirit and the Spirit itself is also groaning. And so where is God in this? The Spirit is within us also groaning. We, we are waiting. We're we're anticipating, we're hoping for this promise of God and the Spirit itself is within us and through wordless groans is interceding on our behalf. And this is a beautiful picture. This is the third doll inside those three dolls. And this is the Spirit calling to the Creator from within the church, from within the pain of the world. It's God calling out to God. At the center of the groaning, at the center of the pain, God is calling out for the promise. And it's just a beautiful picture. Because what he's doing is calling out for the promise of God. He's calling out in the heart of the church. And so now we see we are the glory of God. What does that mean? We are the healing force of God in the world. And the spirit who is now dwelling in us is crying out to the Creator. He's crying out in us, through us. We have hope, and we're the ones who carry this hope in a world that is in childbirth, it's in labor, waiting to give birth. We are the ones who bring that healing as God cries out even in and through us. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. It's such a beautiful picture of God at work in us and still through us. 
Compare this, what we've just read, with what he said back in chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. He said, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, it's saying really similar things. It's the Spirit who is working in us that gives us this hope. And we wait with perseverance and character even through the sufferings, which leads us right into verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, who is the he that he might be firstborn? Who is that he? Jesus. That's here. Okay, we had the one man who brought us all in, the one who brought the first fruits of the destruction and the problem, and now he is bringing us out of it. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28 presumes a God who is not only active in the world, but present with us in our current condition. It just gives this presumption that if God is groaning in us, giving us hope, then we know that even in this suffering that we're experiencing now, that God is here with us. He is active and present even in our suffering. And so that's why He could say in chapter 5, we can glory in our suffering. Why? How can we glory in our sufferings? Because God is working with us and in us and is going to work through us even in our suffering. This idea of suffering is a very common one in the New Testament because of persecution that the church experienced. But it's something that is common in humanity. And and when James says, I reckon that the present suffering, or he says, count it all joy when you fall into different trials, temptations, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance produces that good work God wants to do in us. Suffering is here because of where the world is, and because God is in us. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, the Son of God came not to deliver us from suffering, but in order that our sufferings might be like his. And what I take that to mean is, the suffering that we now go through, we go through because we know the hope that belongs to us in Christ, the restoration of all things, the resurrection 
of our bodies, even as Christ has a resurrected body. We, we know the hope that is there, but we live in a world that is without that hope. And that causes suffering. That causes pain. And we know a world is living apart from that hope and in that struggle, but our suffering is because we know that there is something more for us. And we know that we are separated from that and we patiently wait for it. And so all things work for the good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? His purpose has been revealed in Christ. That's his purpose. His purpose is the spirit of God in us, giving us hope in a world that's crying out for creation, waiting for restoration. That's his purpose. And so as we see this purpose, and it goes on in verse 29 and 30 when he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is Paul's glimpse into the eschatological future. He's connecting us to the future, to reassure both Gentile and Jew believers that despite the present hardship and weakness, God is with them. God is on their side. And he's connecting us to Jesus because Jesus has fulfilled these things. He is the resurrected hope. And so we are connected to him. We might be conformed to his image who is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Jesus is the firstborn, meaning the preeminent one, the important one of many brothers and sisters. And so because Christ has died and is alive, we have died to the old ways and are alive to Christ. And so now he has our identity. So when he says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. How are you glorified? Well, it's by doing the work of God that has been given to us in Christ. How are we justified? Well, it is because Jesus took our penalty and made us Right, he he vindicated us. We are justified because Jesus took that debt. We have the law court metaphor taking place here. So then, how are we predestined? We are predestined because God made a promise to Abraham, fulfilled it in Christ, and now we are in Christ. And so we see that this is all connected back to Jesus. Here is the note of hope, which has been sounded by the implication that so often since it was in chapter five, I mean, it's just been reoccurring this idea of hope, hope, hope for the renewal of all creation in this great act of liberation for which took place to the Israelites in Exodus has now taken place to us in Christ. How Israel all hoped for that hope was based on those things that they saw God deliver them through Egypt. Well, that hope is now ours in Christ, and it is the true Israel that he's been talking about. It's true for all those who are in Christ. So those he foreknew, those he knew about, those he predestined, those he called, those he justified, those he glorified, 
Those are those who are in the person of Christ. The destiny of Israel has devolved entirely appropriately within the Jewish scheme upon the Messiah. All that the new family inheritance is inherited in him. And so everything that the Jews hope for, for this has taken place in Christ. When we are in Christ, we are those he foreknew, we are those he called, we are those he justified, we are those he glorified. Why? Because we are in the first fruits. Jesus, the predestined one, the first fruits of all and the brothers and sisters who would follow after him. The idea of preeminence is really important here and he's going to go on in chapters 9 through 11. When he says firstborn, that's what he means. The one who is preferred. And that's why he's going to say, well, this is my firstborn. When did this person become the firstborn? What does that mean? It means he is preferred by God. And so Jesus is the one who is preferred and we come in him and follow in that place. Our identity is in him. The point is that God does not act at random, but rather he is working in a divine purpose that moves history and moves through history toward an end that God intends. God hasn't left you there. He hasn't abandoned you. No, don't you see that God has planned this all along? And now that you are in Christ, you are in God's plan. So you're suffering. You're under persecution. Your family has kicked you out of its business. You're, you're living wondering what you're going to do and you're suffering this persecution. And Paul says, don't worry. God has called you. Don't worry because God has planned these things for you. Not only has he called you, he, he's justified you. He's made you so that you are vindicated and he has also glorified you. It means you are in his plan and in his purpose even though you feel like you're in exile right now. Even though you feel as if you're just abandoned, you are not, you have the hope. And it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so these verses are very important in that they're connecting us to the work that God has done intentionally through the person of Jesus. And the work that God has done is not yet finished in us. Glorified is the hope for the future. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. We are looking for those things. And so he goes on and he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How is God for us? If God's for us, how do we know God's for us? I am, I'm living under suffering, but you're telling me God is for me. How do I know that God is for me? God has always been for us. God is the one who said, I need to help the world that has now fallen in sin. I will make a covenant with this person. I will help the world see through the nation of Israel and the law that they are lost and in need of help. I will give that help to, the, to them through the person of Jesus Christ. And through the person of Christ, I will fulfill the covenant. God is for us. God has done all this to bring us back into this place of reconciliation. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All things. What are the all things? Because I can think of a lot of things, right? I can think of Ferrari. Is that a thing? Is that one of the things that he's going to give us? Remember what he's connecting us to, the hope, the restoration, the resurrection. He's going to give us all things that lead us to his purposes. So it's not just anything you want. It's to give us all things that bring us to that place of hope, that place of restoration. And again, in chapter 5, verse 11, he said, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's connecting us still, but he's building us what he's been talking about all along. Okay, He's connecting us to himself. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So now we see the law court metaphor here. Who's going to condemn you? You can't be condemned. Christ has already died and is alive. He's already paid the price. There is no penalty now because the penalty has been put on him. God sees us because, sees us justified because Jesus paid that price. The judge says, I rule in your favor because that debt is paid. So who's going to condemn us? No one. Christ died more than that. He's raised from the life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Here we connect that Christ is interceding for us, and we saw that it was the Spirit interceding for us earlier. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written... For your sake, we face death all day long. We are as considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, near height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Doesn't that just make you want to, whoo! It's just this powerful, climactic exclamation of what is ours in Christ. There is no condemnation to those who, who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Why? Because we have been called in him. We have been justified in him. We have been predestined in him. We are glorified him. He is our all in all. And he connects us to the truth of this. The divine love, which has been just his argument since chapter 5, it emerges here, and this whole theme is the gospel message. This covenant love promised to Abraham and his family, 
that family that is now worldwide, people who benefit from Jesus' death, since this love is precisely the Creator's love, it remains sovereign even though the powers of earth and heaven seem to be in turmoil, seem to be raging against it. Its love is the covenant God. It rests in His unbreakable promise that He made all the way back here. God's promise is still true. And we see that this language of the law court, and it also goes into this language of marriage as it kind of emerges there. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now we've got this marriage. Remember the, the law of the marriage. Well, we, if you're married to a person, if a wife is married to a husband, if she's bound to that husband as long as he's alive, but if he dies, she is freed from that. We talked about the law being the law itself. We're not under that. God has freed us. Why? Because we're not under the law. The law is not holding us anymore because our connection to Adam is dead. That has died. We now have this newness of life. So we enter this marriage understanding. And we see here that it's revealed as a vital aspect, a fundamental truth which expresses itself in both these metaphors of the law and the marriage. A righteous God and a loving God. The covenant faithfulness of our Creator revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one. He is the gift of God and that gift comes through His Spirit. We also see that the glory of this genuine humanity, this new humanity that God is creating in Christ and is guaranteed finally by his spirit. It's here, it's present with incredible power. It is our destiny, our future. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. In fact, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Picture yourself sitting in Israel around you know, 56 AD or something, 58 AD maybe it is. Roman government is oppressing the Jewish people, is now oppressing the church. There is persecution taking place. You're sitting in someone's home hearing this letter being read to you. You've been kicked out of your family because maybe you were a Jew and you're no longer accepted because now you're part of the way, the the followers of Christ, or maybe you were a pagan, or maybe the pagan guy is sitting next to you and he's in the same boat that you are. You're both suffering persecution. You're both dealing with the struggles around you. And then you hear this, that you're a more than conqueror through him who loved us. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear that and it's something that is just going to stand out that you are connected to the hope of the future. And no matter what happens here, you have the promise of God that will get you to the restoration of It's connected through resurrection, which was shown through Jesus' resurrection. That now belongs to you. The same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in your mortal bodies. What should that do? What should you be afraid of? Who should you fear? If God is for me, who can be against me? You see, this is meant 
to be our marching orders to help us carry the hope that we have into whatever we face. And so you have people who are following Jesus in Iraq and in countries that are being killed for their faith. What are you going to tell them? What kind of hope are you going to give them? Are, are you going to tell them, don't worry, someday you know, you'll be able to buy a house and you'll be able to get a car and you'll get health insurance. That's not the hope that's going to carry them through this. The hope is that of resurrection. The hope is that nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The hope is that the present sufferings that are taking place in your life aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in you. That glory, God's healing hand at work in and through you. It's going to be your signature left on this world, even after you go, you will sign your name in Jesus' name. Why? Because I have been called, I have been justified, I have been predestined, and I am glorified. In Jesus' name, boom, I'm out of here. It is our hope. It is our calling. It is our identity. And all this, these blessings that you have, you have because the Creator promised them to Israel and has now given them in Christ to you. And so that's what he's telling us. Therefore, what do we have to say about Israel itself? That's where he's leading us. Because if this is all true, then what about Israel? What's going to happen with them? What, where do they fit into all this? The nation of Israel, what is their part now that this has all happened and been fulfilled in Christ? And that's where we're going to go next. Okay. Any questions or thoughts on this? I'd rather get baptized. Um, Um, it was to identify them with their nationality, the Jewish people. It was part of their covenant agreement with the law of God. Um, so in similarities, I guess you could say, yeah, it connected them to the identity of Israel where baptism connects us to the identity of Christ. Yeah, there's this, you could say that similarity. Any other thoughts or questions? You know, the payoff is amazing it's just taken us a long time to get there this is kind of the payoff that paul's been building up to he's just been presenting this case of who we are in adam where the world is how creation has you know uh left its status you know they love the creature rather the creator all these things he's been talking about trying to get us to the place where really we're at and then he's going to deal with Israel, and then he's going to move us on from there. But this is kind of what he's been building to. This is, I mean, this is the highlight of Romans. This is the crowning jewel, these verses. I mean, you read them, and they just reverberate in your soul. It's like, oh my gosh, really? This belongs to me? And, you know, I don't want to make light of any of the struggles that we have, because Sometimes they feel pretty horrendous. I mean, I feel that way with my struggles, and I know some of your struggles and the pains you guys go through as well. But understand that the church, we're going through similar struggles that we were doing, are going through, but also 
physical persecution as well. Whenever we feel like God doesn't understand, these words were written to people just like us, in fact, probably people in worse conditions than us. And it gave them enough hope to change the world. They should do the same for us. Because we have the first fruits of God's promise in Jesus that now belong to us. You know, and it's important that we connect that our identity, our justification, our predestination, our calling, are in the person of Jesus. You know, it's interesting just to bring a little because these are scriptures that get used a lot. When you ask someone if they're how are they justified? Well, I'm justified because of Jesus. How are you predestined? I'm predestined because of Jesus. It all goes back to the promise. How are you glorified? I'm glorified because of Jesus. And so we are in Christ. Therefore, when we are in Christ, we are called. Why? Because God has called us through Christ. How are you justified? Well, I'm justified through Christ. How are you predestined? I'm predestined because God had predetermined from the foundation of the world this is what's going to happen. How are you glorified? I'm glorified because Christ is risen, seated at the right hand of God. He's there now. I'm in him. Okay? So that's important to understand as we're going through that. Okay? No questions? All right. That's pretty good. Let's pray. Father, these words are powerful, they are hopeful, they are filled with life, promise, and Lord, glory. And Lord, the glory that is going to be revealed in us, Lord, may that glory be taking place as we bring your healing to the world around us. May we be the ones who, in the middle of a creation that is crying out, in labor pains, may we be the ones that cry out with hope, even as your spirit is within us also crying out with words that cannot be uttered, bringing us to a place where one day we will receive that redemption of our bodies, restoration of all things, a resurrected body, and Lord, we have hope. May we hold on to that hope. May we hold on to these promises. May we recognize who we are because of you and what you have done and that nothing can separate us from this love that has been from the foundations of the world. We thank you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.